One of the things I'm learning a lot about the moment is about the English revival in the 18th century. So stay tuned because I've got an epic story that I read this week for you all to enjoy um, as part of the sermon today. So we're going to be looking at Matthew 24 verses 36 to 42 later on. But let me just say, isn't Advent wonderful? It is the season of hope and expectation. It's like there is, but forgive me for using this word, but like magic in the air. There's something about this season that is just joyful. And as Adam and Alice have told us already, Advent is the first Sunday of the church's liturgical year. Um, So happy new year from me too. And I wanted to show you something to illustrate this. In our house over these past two weeks, we have been counting down to something wonderful. On the 22nd of November, my little boy turned five. Isn't that great? So the excitement in our house began a lot early. Every day he's been crossing out those numbers and yesterday he had a birthday in a soft play area. So do forgive my voice as we wrangled five-year-olds around a soft play all day. But it has been so much fun. And it got me thinking about Advent because there's this huge misconception about Advent in our culture that it is just this countdown to Christmas Day, something to sort of pass us by. And it is a countdown to the first coming of Jesus, that incarnation moment where Jesus was born to us this day. But it is so much more than that. It's so much more than just a countdown fueled by chocolates and candles. Advent is this beautiful season of hope and expectation as we remember the story of Jesus' first coming and we prepare our hearts in this season for his second coming when he will return again. So it's an active kind of thing, Advent, for us. There is something about us. And so what we're going to do as we read this story is ask these questions. What are we waiting for? And how do we wait well? What are those implications for today? Let me read the Bible to us now. Matthew 24, verses 36 to 42. The day and the hour unknown. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating, and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is some instructions from Jesus. And he's talking about the kingdom, the Christian hope, and the end of the world. And to illustrate this, he tells two stories. One about Noah, Genesis 6 to 8, and one about a thief in the night. 
but just an opening question just to get us going so we can engage as a church family together. I want you to turn to the person next to you just for one minute. Who do you want to be in this story? Particularly looking at verses 40 to 41. Do you want to be taken or do you want to be left? Turn to the person next to you. Try and work it out together as we've heard that story read. Do you want to be taken or do you want to be left? You've got one minute and then... Um, try and make a note of it on your phone. Okay, hold that thought because we're going to come back to it later. Verse 36, but about that day. Now, Matthew's written predominantly to a Jewish audience and Jesus is talking to people. They would have understand what he was talking about when, they, when he was saying that day. Based on the rest of that chapter, he's talking about the end of the world, Christian hope, the kingdom of God. And according to the Bible, what does that end look like? What are we waiting for? Our first question. And in the opening verses of this chapter, we get a clue. Jesus refers to himself in verse 37 as the son of man. And that's a breadcrumb for us. And the audience would have got it too. It's referring back to the broader story of God, something in Daniel 7. And Jesus is using this title for himself. Let me read this to us and as it tells us about the end of the world and that coming kingdom. Daniel 7 verses 13 to 14. In Daniel's vision, there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that is God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations, all people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Images of this perfect kingdom where the come, Jesus is using this title of himself saying, I will come again and establish this perfect kingdom. Will I silence every injustice, wipe away every tear and all nations, all people will be gathered round me and it will be forever. It will never pass away. It will never be destroyed. It's things that we can't do ourselves. We can't gather all people around the person of Jesus. Only God can do that. So we wait expectedly because nobody knows, as Jesus teaches us today, verse 36, nobody knows when this day will come. So we wait expectedly for this coming king and this perfect kingdom, the second coming of Jesus. And sometimes you might have heard Ben say this from the front, waiting is the posture of a disciple. That's the kind of people we want to be, waiting on God to move, watching for him at work and jumping in wholeheartedly. Waiting is the posture of a disciple. Waiting is also a posture 
of worship. There is something about, as we've been reflecting on these verses this week, that waiting talks, it speaks of like a longing. It's more of a heart language than like something you actually think about. It's more of a heart thing than a head thing. It's a longing. It's a waiting. It's an attentiveness. Yes, it demands something of us now, but more like a child to a father than a slave to a master. There is a longing. There is a love. There is an attentiveness there. And just some thoughts about Advent connecting this story to the season that we're in. When we think about Advent, I don't know about you, but at times we kind of want it to hurry along. You know, can we just get to that great day of Christmas when we have the pigs in blankets and we gather around the tree as a family? But to hurry it misses out on so much of what God is doing in this season. As we turn our hearts to him, he is working in the waiting. And hurry is something I've been thinking about a lot at the moment. Nick Barnsley, who's a member of our team, she's just giving me wide eyes at the moment. Actually, she's been really helpful to me to think about worry this season. I don't know how you feel at the moment in the preparation for Christmas, at the start of this Advent season, but I've felt so hurried basically since the summer. You know, as we've had the, the joy and the expectation of entering into this building again, as I've just started a new course and there is so much demands on our time. And Nick's been really helpful just to say, slow down, wait on God. She used a line with me in, in a meeting the other day and it was really helpful. It's really got me thinking about slowing down and making space to God. If the enemy of God can't stop you, what he'll do is he'll speed you up. He'll get you not really thinking, not really looking for God and just reacting to things as they come. And I found that challenge. It was one line really, she asked me a question in a meeting and it stayed with me for about three weeks. And as I start, as I've been preparing these verses today from Matthew, I just want us to invite us to enter into that mindset of seeing Advent as God's gift to us, a gift maybe to slow down. If you're anything like me, do hear these words and act upon them because life is relentless. But see the start of this new year as an opportunity to reset, to take on the posture of a disciple and to wait and to worship longingly, joyfully, to see what God might be doing on our hearts. So as we take the chocolates as December 1st comes, if you've got a candle, um, a candle, you might light a candle, um, but as you, as you open the door, maybe savour the taste of it, rather than just scoffing them like I might do, um, but maybe just savour the taste as a prayer and say, God, what might you want to do in me in this season? Or maybe over these next four weeks as we prepare for that second coming, maybe it is a time to add things in, to add joy to your walk with Jesus as we wait and as we long for his second coming. Now we have this really interesting section in our Bible teaching today about two stories. The story of Noah in Genesis 6 to 8 and the second of a break-in. And Jesus is making this point to us and illustrating it in two ways. And his point is this. We do not have to wait in fear. We do not have to wait in fear. Jesus selects these two stories to tell us something about the end of the world. He uses this word parousia, which talks about the second coming of the king, when he will establish his everlasting 
kingdom, when he comes and takes his throne and all nations are gathered around him in worship and it'll be that everlasting kingdom. And these stories that Jesus selects for us in Matthew 24 are given to remind the Christian that we can face the end of days with a sincere heart and all the assurance that faith can bring. We do not have to wait in fear. So here's the point of the Noah story. Jesus is reminding us that it will be sudden. It'll be like a flood. If you can cast your mind back to that familiar story in Genesis 6 to 8, even if you're very, very new to the Bible, as I know a lot of people are, as we've opened this building, God has been bringing all sorts of wonderful people to join us. If you've never had the chance to read the Bible before, perhaps you're familiar with the story of Noah and the flood. And if you can remember, if you're not, I'm going to say there was, there was a moment where God spoke to Noah and his family and he said to them, build a boat because the rains are coming. And those who are in the boat will be saved and those who are outside of the boat will be swept away. And as Jesus is drawing on that story in the Old Testament, he's reminding us that the end of days will be sudden, like that of the flood when the rain came. And when the rain came, the world was divided into two groups, those who are in the ark and those who are outside of the ark. Those who hear the word of the Lord and respond with faith are saved and those who live in rebellion against God are rejected and swept away. Now, in the days of Noah, who was taken and who was left? Well, the wicked are taken away and his family are left. So in the days of the second coming of the king, this parousia, this establishing of the everlasting kingdom, where God will silence every injustice, wipe away every tear, where there will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more suffering, where God will be with his people and we will be with God, who will be taken away and who will be left? The wicked are taken away and those who have responded in faith remain. So back to that question at the start of our look at Matthew 24 today. Do we want to get left behind or do we want to be taken away? Absolutely, we want to be left behind. We want to re remain. So often when we read a Bible story, we read our own interpretation into it. But this isn't a rapture. This isn't some great escape for the people of God. God has a plan for this world to redeem it, to renew it, to establish his new heaven and new earth. And those who've responded in faith will be with him forever. The rain falls down and with it, two things happen. A warning and a promise. Judgment fell on the earth, the rain came, and those who responded in faith were in the ark and saved. So what were the people doing instead of being in the ark? Look with me if you've got your Bible open to verse 38. People were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage. Well, obviously, these are not bad things. These are things that many of us still do today. Hands up if you've had a drink today. Very good. At least three of you have had a drink, which is very reassuring. There is good news coming, guys. There is tea and coffee at the end of this service. And we have got as much water as you could possibly drink. It's from the tap, free of charge today. You can have a drink. These are not bad things. There is nothing sinful about them. 
What is sinful is their indifference towards God and his revelation. Timothy Keller says, apathy is a bigger problem than atheism for Christianity. William Lane Craig calls this apathyism. This thing of when God is speaking, but people aren't really that bothered. It's the temptation we all face down, um, deep down in our hearts to write God out of our lives. Like an awareness of um, a spirituality, but not really doing anything with it. And we live as if we don't need God deep down. And in the rain, God is laying the foundations, a pattern of how he's going to deal with that and answer. The problem that's in all of us needs addressing. Something needs to die so new life and new birth can happen. Sin. Only the Christian vision of human flourishing says that the problem isn't out there in the world, but actually in my own heart. And something needs to be done about it. And in love, God warns us. And in love, God makes a promise. And he does something about it. And our sin is washed away. And we have to deal with this stuff. I wonder if that's what some of the encouragement and challenge to us as a church is Christy Wimber and Sandy Miller were with us last weekend here doing a conference called Effective Leadership. The thing that I got away from that took away from that was when God speaks, when there's a breakthrough, there really should be follow through. We should deal with our stuff before it begins to deal with us. And they're just some of the phrases that I've been mulling on. But the good news is God has done something about it. So in love, he warns us. And it's more than a warning. In love, he makes a promise. Those in the ark were saved. People brought in by the grace of God, saved by faith in God, the ark of the Lord. In love, Jesus warns them that the waters will be sudden, just like in the story now, Matthew 24. And in love, Jesus stands before these people as the ark of safety, saying, trust me, put your faith in me. So how does this relate to Advent? What are these stories helping us to call to mind. Yes, we're waiting on the coming king, but are we waiting for forgiveness to arrive? Absolutely not. In Advent, we're remembering the story. There's a looking back at his first coming, looking back to a time when forgiveness was given, when Jesus lived, when he died on the cross for us, when he rose again from the grave and he ascended into heaven and he's at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for you and for me. And we're looking forward to a time when a promise will be fully realised, when sin will be dealt with once and for all, where his kingdom will be perfectly established here on earth and God will be his people, with his people and we will be with God. What does that mean? That means today I do not need to live in fear of am I saved or not. God is with me and I have the full assurance of all that faith brings to me as a follower of Jesus. Am I worried about what my eternal future will be? Absolutely not. Because by faith I've received this gift of salvation by grace through faith. We do not need to look at the end of days to know if we are forgiven. We need to look at the end of his day, Jesus's life, to know if we're forgiven. We need to look at the cross. And I'm entirely confident because of his great love for us 
Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me illustrate this by telling a story about this kind of confidence and how it might impact the way we live. It's a story that begins with a place in Newcastle that I am utterly terrified of being rejected in. It's the Weatherspoons across the road. Now, we've been doing Alpha here as a church, and it has been so much fun to get to know some of these wonderful people God's been bringing to the church as we've explored questions of life, faith, and meaning. Alpha is a course that we run. It explores the basics of the Christian faith. You'd be very welcome. But our course is coming to an end, and it was about four weeks ago. I rallied the troops to go to the pub after Alpha, about 20 of us. And we all headed off. And Stefan is already grinning at me. So we walk into the pub and I go and order a pint. And um, I say, and he, he says, have you got any ID? And I say, no, I don't have any ID, but thank you for asking. I'm 32 with two children, I'm married, bags under my eyes, but I must be looking absolutely fantastic today. And I said, no, I don't have any ID. And then the manager walks over, kind of like God in this story and says, well, if you've not got any ID, my friend, you have to leave. Now, I had a moment to make a decision. 20 pairs of eyes looked at me like, what are we going to do? Stefan leaves the charge and says, let's go to a new pub. In the back of my head, I'm like, if this happens again in the next pub, I am never going to live this down. So I had to convince them, no, you stay, have a good night. Next week, I'll make sure I bring my ID. Billy is still teasing for me about it week in, week out on Alpha. But the kind of confidence that I approach the end of days that day when Jesus comes again is the kind of confidence that a German penalty taker has in the World Cup or the kind of confidence that I will have tonight after the evening service when I walk into Weatherspoons holding this pink card, which is my ID. We don't look to the end of our life to find out if we're forgiven. We look to the end of Jesus' life for that answer. What difference does this make? It means that the overarching hope of our life is that we're, we're going to be with Jesus because of what he's done on the cross. He brought us to God. He who knew no sin bore our sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So it means that when we're in work and we're facing up against it or it's a difficult day, because I know where I'm going to be in the future, it can give me strength to carry on today. It gives us urgency to love when we look around our families or our friends and we're looking for opportunities for God at work. Not striving to make things happen, but waiting as the posture of a disciple and say, God, where's the opportunity here? And how can I jump in wholeheartedly? It humbles us when we're tempted to pride. It means we can forgive others knowing that we have been forgiven and it lifts us up when we're tempted to despair imagine a world where this is the way we live imagine our homes and families where this is the way we love one another imagine our neighborhoods and communities where this is the way imagine how governments might act if they really embraced this idea of christian hope in the face of what is to come Imagine what businesses and schools, how they might shape themselves in light of the Christian hope and what is to come. Jesus is coming to take his throne. We do not need to fear because of the substitutionary 
atonement of Jesus, we are forgiven. By that I mean he who knew no sin became our sin. The brokenness in me was placed on him that I might be the righteousness of God and be brought to God in loving relationship. So the second illustration. We know we don't have to wait in fear. That's Jesus' main point. And he illustrates that two ways. Enter the thief in the night. Let me tell you about Friday night here in Newcastle City Centre. So I'd just been speaking at the Newcastle Christian Union and we'd gone to McDonald's. Sorry, Lucy, I didn't tell you. I got a burger and chips. And, um, but on the way home... Um, from getting my burger and chips with the lovely students after Newcastle CEU, I walked past our building and I saw the lights flashing. And I'm thinking, well, that's not normal, but maybe it's just the lift or something like that. So I do a little lap of the building and there's a transit van at the back door and a man going in and out. 10 p.m. on a Friday, I'm thinking, what is going on here? I try and ring Ben. Ben's on a CEU weekend away speaking to students who are at Sheffield University, encouraging them to live and speak for Jesus. He doesn't pick up. I ring Lee. He's enjoying a nice glass of Rioja with Rachel. I'm thinking, I've got to do something about this. It was Rachel's birthday this week. Happy birthday, Rachel. Um, So I'm thinking, what do I do? The adrenaline start pumping. I'm thinking, fight or flight? Or do I ring Joel? I don't know. Would that help? I don't know. So I'm thinking, no, I'll ring the police. So I ring the police. And they say, well, what's going on? I say, you've got to help me. I've got to get in this building, find out what the damage is, and we've got to secure it. And so the guy drives off in the transit van. I'm reading out the registration plate to the police saying, we've got to track this guy down. And um, he drives off. The alarm's still blurred. It turns out it was the boiler man. He'd come to do some work here on Thursday, and out of the kindness of his heart to make sure we're warm this morning, he'd come Friday night, 10 o'clock, to get the thing working. But for me... I didn't sleep. Poor Lee was dragged out. I was on high alert. We managed to get it sorted. Do not worry. Verse 42. Therefore, keep watch. Stay awake. Be alert. The words Gregorio. Is there anybody here called Gregory this morning? No. Does anyone know anybody called Gregory? A few of you do. Well, the name means to keep watch. The name actually comes from reflections on verses like this one in the Bible. It's the second most popular Pope name. Because of the second coming, Jesus will come without warning. And so he says, therefore, stay awake. Let's think about this a little bit. Because this can be heard in a slightly negative way. How on earth do we stay awake for all time until Jesus returns? Should we just all camp here and just, how does that actually work? And if you're somebody who is an anxious person or regularly enters into this heightened sense of readiness, like I was on Friday night outside of this building as I thought the thing was being looted, pastorally, I know this affects some people But the encouragement from Jesus in these verses to us about the end of all days and Christian hope and his coming kingdom is do not worry. That is to say, you do not need to live in that state of heightened emotional anxiety. In another sense, what is being said here is that this is not an intellectual response. It's not really even like a, 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 how to word it, 
I think one commentator said it's more of an ethical response, that the demands on the life of a Christian is to live ready, that your life, that your heart and your hands would be ready for his second coming, not just your head. It's a heart thing, it's a hands thing. In other words, we're to live today, and I know many of you work, some of you study, faithfully doing the things that God has called us to do with one eye on that glorious day when Jesus will return. It's an ethical thing, not an emotional thing. It's a command to us, an instruction to us to continue to live faithfully today, hopeful of that day that will come. I was talking to Brandon, who's leading the youth Bible study. It's like, imagine your house. And we think that our house is a mess and what will God say when he appears on that second day? That's not really the illustration here. On the cross, Jesus dealt with the mess in our house. That room was all tidied up. He took it upon himself and we received this newness of life. We were given keys to a new life as we were born again as brothers and sisters around Jesus. So we get to live in that new house and that new house is the party house. That new house is the place where we invite people round our table and we share generously and we love generously. And that house is the safe house for the people of Newcastle as well, where we can hear their pain, where we can listen to their tears and we can love them unconditionally because we are loved unconditionally. So the command here to stay awake and stay alert is to continue to live as disciples of Jesus. We don't know when he will return. But what we do know is that we've been set free from our sin, that we've experienced the love of God and generously we can share that with us. We're to live faithfully today in light of that that is to come. So are you doing the stuff a disciple of Jesus should be doing? A life of faith, hope, and love. And note, that includes sleeping, by the way. You're allowed to sleep. I do not need to fear. With a sincere heart, I know that I'm saved by faith through grace. With all the assurance that that brings. And I'm to live faithfully in response to that knowledge as a disciple of Jesus. I'm going to read a story for us now from the English Revival. It's the conversion of Charles Simeon. I'm going to use this, this is my last story, as a way of preparing us to come and receive communion together as a family. And we're asking the question as we hear this story, how do we prepare our hearts in this season of Advent? And I love hearing this story this week in one of my lectures because it's a story that begins with a book. It starts with the guy's head as he thinks about God and it very quickly moves to his heart and it ends with his hands open in front of the Lord's table. Head, heart, hands. So context, he's at Cambridge University. He's on a pathway to become a vicar in the Church of England. And back then you didn't need to believe in Jesus to be a vicar in the Church of England. You just have to have a degree and a bishop would ordain you. And that's where this story gets picked up in his journal. It was the third day after my arrival that I understood I should be expected in the space of about three weeks to attend the Lord's Supper. What, said I, must I attend? On being informed that I must, the thought rushed into my mind that Satan himself 
was as fit to attend as I, and that if I must attend, I must prepare for my attendance there. Without a moment's loss of time, I bought the whole Day of Man, the only religious book that I'd ever heard of, and began to read it with great diligence, at the same time calling my ways to remembrance and crying to God for mercy. So earnest was I in these exercises that within three weeks, I made myself quite ill with reading, fasting, and prayer. My distress of mind continued for about three months, and might well it continued for years since my sins were more in number than the hairs on my head. But God, in infinite condescension, began at last to smile upon me and give me hope of acceptance with him. It was in Passion Week as I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I was met with an expression to this effect that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering, the thought came into my mind, what? May I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then, God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. And on the Wednesday, began to have hope of mercy. On the Thursday, that hope increased. On Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And on Sunday morning, Easter day, April 4th, I awoke early with the words upon my heart and my lips, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. From that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. I'm just going to leave a moment's quiet after that. I'm going to invite the band up. And do you think, as you've heard from the Bible today, how might we prepare our hearts for Him? As the band come and take their place, and just before Adam leads us in communion, I'm just going to leave a moment of still waiting is the posture of a disciple. What might God be saying to you? Let's stand together. As Adam comes up to lead us on, here's just three ways I think we can respond, just very simply, to the earnest seeker here today, who's hearing this story maybe for the first time or the hundredth time. Trust him. Trust God in his word. Like Noah and many of us here, step into that ark of safety. If you'd like to pray that prayer, come grab me, Adam, anyone with a lanyard. We would love to pray with you of what, and just talk about what it means to trust in Jesus. To anyone here who is fearful 
of what is to come, of the future, be assured, have confidence in God, take him at his word. One of the songs we're gonna to use today to respond in worship is come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins, release us. Be assured, have Christian hope of what is to come and to all of us, rejoice. That really is what the season of Advent is all about. It's why we sing songs like joy to the world. Our King is coming back. There will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more sickness. It really is good news. It really is a reason to have a smile on your face today. Rejoice.